Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with him. Scripture teaches us that when we sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. That means that his ongoing sanctifying ministry, that means his ministry where he's producing spiritual growth in our lives, is stifled or shut down whenever we are living on the basis of the sin nature. It is when we confess our sins, which means simply to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, that we realize forgiveness of those sins in terms of our experience in time. We're restored to fellowship. Scripture says that when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at that instant, we're restored to fellowship and the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in terms of producing spiritual growth uh, continues. So we'll bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, as we study your word, we are mindful that the scriptures teaches us that it is your word that has power in our lives, that your word has been revealed by you, and it is infallible and errant, and it is sufficient for every problem in our lives, that we are to guide and direct all of our thinking and all of our actions according to the framework revealed to us in your word. Now, Father, as we study these things this morning, we pray that we would have the concentration, the focus to think through what is being taught, and that as God the Holy Spirit makes these things clear to us, we will respond to his teaching and guidance in our lives in terms of application. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Seems that it's a bit warm in here this morning. Last week we had the problem and we cranked the air conditioner down. We got it fixed and doesn't seem like it got repaired. So... We'll just have to bear with it this morning. Just remember those wonderful days when they didn't have air conditioning. How did people live in the swamp of Houston back then? All right, we're in our study of Revelation, where we're but we're taking a little detour to study a very important background uh, doctrine, 
that is foundational to understanding what is happening during the tribulation period that is described in Revelation chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 19. And this topic is called the angelic conflict. We studied the fall of Satan. We have seen that Satan rebelled against God. He wanted to be like God rather than operating on humility and dependence upon the Creator. He decided he wanted to be the uh, worshipped and to have the glory as the Creator and that he could run the universe on his own. We went from that to a look at his, his attacks in human history. There are two categories of satanic attacks in human history. We've categorized them as direct attacks and indirect attacks. A direct attack is when Satan himself or demons are directly acting upon uh, the human race or individuals within the human race to some degree. An indirect attack is when he is using human beings or human thought systems to, uh, to uh, put forward his agenda. So we have to maintain that distinction. Now, last time, I developed the idea that there is a parallel and a consistency, a pattern, that we see starting in the very first attack on the human race, which occurred in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan indwelt the serpent and used the serpent to tempt the woman in the garden and then, uh, then the man. The foundation of that assault was to question three things, and this is foundational to understanding the assault we're going to look at today. We began last week on Christ in Matthew chapter 4. The first is a question of the sufficiency of the grace of God. Satan questions the sufficiency of the grace of God. Has God really given you enough? And that's what the word sufficiency means. It means that God has given you enough. And that means that no matter what problem, what situation, what heartache, what insurmountable obstacle there may appear to be in your life, God's grace is always enough. You don't need to look elsewhere in order to surmount the problem. Second thing that Satan questions is the sufficiency of the Word of God. You see this in the way he forms the question to Eve in the garden. He said, has God said? And the innuendo there is, is this really valid? And then he says, you won't die. He just directly challenges that statement by God that if they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die instantly. He says, no, you won't die. The thing is, God doesn't knows that if you eat of the fruit of the tree, that you will be like him, and he doesn't want you to be like him. So he questions the sufficiency of God's word. It's not really, it's not really true. God really didn't tell you the whole story. And then the third thing that is questioned is the integrity of God's plan, the integrity of God's plan. Now, as I've extrapolated these three elements from the attack in the garden, we see them manifest themselves in subsequent assaults. There's the attack. The first major attack was in the garden. The second major attack we studied was the attack on the human race in the invasion of the sons of God taking human wives in Genesis chapter 6. And the third comes with the, the, the cross. 
Now, to trace this through the Scripture, we have to understand what God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to the serpent. There he said, to the, addressing the serpent, addressing Satan through the serpent, he said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, referring to a fatal wound that occurs at the cross where Jesus destroys and ultimately defeats Satan, even though he still is active. And he, and the Lord said to the serpent, and he shall bruise his heel. In other, in other words, there's just this temporary bruising of the, uh, uh, of the heel of the, of the seed. So you have this key term here, the seed of the woman. That's the basis for the attack in Genesis chapter 6, is to try to destroy the purity of the human race to prevent the coming, the arrival of the seed of the woman. For it is at the cross where the seed of the woman defeats Satan. The cross is where Jesus Christ, as true humanity, takes our place as our substitute on the cross. Now, the next thing that I did last week was to fit this within the framework of what the New Testament tells us about the objectives of Jesus Christ at the time of the Incarnation. Why did the eternal second person of the Trinity come to earth? Well, his primary mission was to go to the cross and there to pay the penalty for our sins as our substitute. But secondary objectives involve establishing the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age and to demonstrate that man could rely exclusively on the sufficiency of God's grace, the sufficiency of God's word, and the integrity of God's plan to surmount any and all problems that he faces in life. The first key passage that we looked at was Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is a very famous passage dealing with the describing the mechanics of the incarnation. The focal point here is understanding humility, and there's that contrast between the humility that Jesus Christ demonstrated in his humanity in reference to obedience to Christ. Always remember, the key definition of humility is proper orientation to the authority over you. Humility is not humiliation. Humility is not some sort of false meekness. Uh, Humility is orientation to authority over you, so that Jesus Christ humbles himself by being obedient to the point of the cross. And this is the point that uh, Paul is making in Philippians chapter 2. Isn't it always interesting how when Paul wants to talk about very practical, uh, what we might call in our 21st century context, abstract theological principles, um, Paul always deals with them in terms of uh, straight uh, day-to-day application. It's never just sort of abstract theology that hangs out there in terms of just... uh, just, uh, human thought. It's always grounded within very practical applications. We live in an age today when many people go to church on Sunday, and what they want is to have a 15-minute sermonette that's going to make them feel good, lift their spirits, 
uh, give them some sort of uh, pseudo-confidence in their own self-esteem rather than learning the Word of God. They just want three or four bullet points of something they can take home and apply in the afternoon. But the writers of Scripture never thought that way. The Apostle Paul comes to a very practical subject, that is being humble and oriented to authority, the authority of God, rather than operating on arrogance. And as soon as he brings up this very practical and very important issue of humility, it takes him to the pattern, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, and his illustration involves one of the most difficult, abstract theological points in the Scripture, and that is the what is called the hypostatic union, the union of humanity, the true humanity to the undiminished deity of the second person of the Trinity. So he says, let this mind or let this mental attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, that is, who was essential deity, he was undiminished deity, he was 100% God, he was eternal God of God, as it was stated in the classic ecumenical creeds of the early church, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Ephesus, uh, the Council of Chalcedon, he was the he was true God of true God. He was in the form of God, but did, he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he emptied himself, and I modified the translation there. Normally, I'm using I've been using uh, New King James, but the verbiage here from the New American Standard is a better translation, and and even that is not a, not that accurate. It's the The Greek verb is kanao, and it means he restricted himself. He limited himself. He doesn't give up anything. He doesn't become less than God when he is incarnate in uh, humanity. He adds to his deity the form of a bondservant, which is in the likeness of men. He adds to his deity true humanity. He empties himself. That means he he is going to restrict the use of his uh, divine attributes for a time in order to, to accomplish the objectives of the incarnation. And here I have a definition uh, I wanted to give you on the kenosis. Now, the reason that we talk about this is this has been a major discussion, debate among theologians for some time. Liberals came up with the idea that what kenosis meant was that he uh, he gave up his deity, and that's false. What it does, though, is it shows that in the addition of humanity, he restricted his, his the use of his divine attributes, and it's this is crucial to understand this, because what this does is to show us the pattern for our own spiritual life. This is one of the most encouraging and strengthening doctrines we can focus on in all of the scripture because what it shows us is that Jesus Christ in his humanity did not reach over into his deity and grab hold of his omniscience or his omnipotence or any other divine ability in order to solve the problems and the challenges of his own spiritual life in his humanity. Because he was trying to demonstrate something. He was trying to demonstrate that, a, that the word of God is sufficient, the grace of God is sufficient, and the plan of God is, is true and righteous. It has integrity. So, let's look at our definition of kenosis. 
I've broken it down into two slides. First of all, it means that the eternal second person of the Trinity took upon himself true humanity without relinquishing or diminishing any attribute of deity. In other words, he doesn't give up his omnipresence. He doesn't give up his omnipotence. It doesn't diminish them either. He is still that little baby lying in the manger in Bethlehem in his deity is still holding the universe together. He is still sustaining the universe. He is still the glue that keeps atoms from uh, exploding and all of the electrons and neutrons and protons going in every which direction. But in terms of his life on earth as the incarnate second person, his hum- human life is not being dependent upon that divine life. Second sentence. During the incarnation, Jesus Christ willingly restricted the use of his divine attributes in solving any problems or tests related to his humanity or his human spiritual life in order to fulfill the Father's plan for the incarnation. Now, that's a long sentence. What I'm saying is that many of you have heard definitions again and again and again where it talks about the fact that in the, in, in the uh, incarnation, Jesus Christ... Uh, restricted the independent use of his divine attributes. And the key word there is independent. And what I question is that did he ever, in all of eternity, as the second person of the Trinity, ever operate independently from the plan of the Father? No, he didn't. So that's not really a, that, that's, that, that's a word that doesn't really have, have real significance in understanding this. The issue is that in his humanity, he's not reaching over and trying to solve any of his problems by relying upon his deity. In other words, he's solving the problems with the same assets and resources that you have. And he's saying man can do it, and God's grace is sufficient, and God's word is sufficient, and the plan of God works. Let's go on with the definition. Jesus never relied on his divine powers to solve human tests. We ended last time just at the verge of going into the three tests, the temptations of Christ in the wilderness. When he is at a point of weakness, having spent 40 days and 40 nights without food, when he is at that point of physical weakness, when he is at his most vulnerable, and as Satan comes to tempt him, Satan is testing him to see if he's going to rely upon the sufficiency of God's grace, the sufficiency of God's word, and the integrity of God's plan, or not. And Jesus doesn't solve the problems in his humanity by saying, okay, I can, I can turn the stones into bread, and I can feed myself. He doesn't do that. He says, I've got to solve the problem in my humanity by relying on the same resources that God has given every, every believer. So... I go on to say, though, that Christ did use his own divine power to demonstrate his own deity. See, it wasn't that Jesus never used his deity, but he never used it to solve the problems of his humanity. He used it to solve other people's problems in their humanity. When he healed them, now sometimes he healed them by means of the Holy Spirit, sometimes he healed them from his own power. He forgave, that's from his own deity. He changed the water into wine, demonstrating that he was the creator. 
He raised Lazarus from the dead, indicating that he is the one who gives life. See, he did this from his own deity, not to solve his problems, but to solve others' problems. For example, when he healed the blind man and gave him sight. He is doing this to demonstrate who he was as the eternal second person of the Trinity, not to solve problems or tests related to his own uh, spiritual life. Conclusion. By limiting his use of his deity, he demonstrated that the Word of God and the Spirit of God are alone sufficient to fulfill the Father's plan for the believer. And that gives us incredible confidence that when we take the Word of God seriously and at face value and we trust it and we claim the promises of God and we understand the dimensions of the grace of God that are infinite and we understand the vast resources that God has given us, then no matter what we're going through, we can have stability and confidence and we can relax and have joy in Christ despite the pressure, the stress that comes from the pressure of external circumstances. Now, in that passage, we went on to, I went on to point out that the issue was humility being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself in contrast to Satan, who was arrogant. He became, uh, he became obedient to the point of death, and Satan was disobedient. And the result is that God, therefore, verse 9, also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. He is created at the level of a creature below the angels, but because of his humility, his orientation to God's will, his, his willingness to submit his will to God's will, he's elevated above the angels. He's given a name that is above every name. And he is glorified by the Father. In contrast, Satan is seeking self-glorification. Arrogance always is self-absorbed and seeks self-glorification. Now, from Hebrews, we went on to, I mean, from Philippians, we went on to Hebrews chapter 2. And Hebrews chapter 2 talks about the fact that man was created lower than the angels. But man, in terms of the first man, the first Adam, Failed, failed at the garden, succumbed to the satanic assault. So there was a necessity in Paul's terminology to send a second Adam, to send someone in the same uh, uh, flesh as Adam without the sin nature. So we pick up the context. Hebrews 2.6 says that in the Old Testament says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor. Jesus Christ is honored and glorified at the ascension, but he does not take his place as ruler until he returns to the second coming, when he will be set over the works of his hands. Verse 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all, put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. In other words, this is where things are headed. We don't see everything under the authority of Christ as ruler now. That is because he's at the right hand of God the Father in session. We say seated at the right hand of the Father, and it won't be until the second coming that he takes actual ownership. Verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. See, this is where it connects Jesus to man who's created lower than the angels. 
we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. That's the same thing that Paul said in Philippians 2. See how the Bible just, everything supports other statements in the Scripture. Everything fits together. You take the Bible as an integrated whole, and you see that these these themes run from Genesis to Revelation, and successive Revelation reinforces earlier Revelation, and everything ties together and interconnects. So Jesus, because of the suffering of death, he humbled himself to the point of death. He is crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste or fully experience, in the Greek, death for everyone. That is, when he died on the cross, we call it unlimited atonement. He paid the penalty for every sin. Verse 10, for he, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that's a reference to the Father, to make the captain of their salvation, that's Jesus Christ is referred to here as the captain of our salvation, the archegos, a pioneer, trailblazer. He is the one who sets the pattern, the precedent for us in the way in which he handles suffering. To make the captain, the pioneer of their salvation perfect, that is mature, through suffering. Jesus Christ in his humanity had to grow up just like you do. He had to go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity, and he did it using the same resources that you do, that you have, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. He didn't have anything else. He doesn't rely on his deity to do it. He has to memorize Scripture. He has to go through the faith rest, drill, trusting God, claiming God's promises day in and day out, thinking through these things the same way you and I do. He just didn't have the problem of the sin nature uh, that clouds his thinking. But we have the Spirit of God to surmount that. So that's just the introduction to why we have the three big uh, tests or temptations in Matthew chapter 4. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We saw last time that at the end of chapter 3, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in a unique baptism that inaugurates him for his public ministry, and immediately following that, Jesus is led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be uh, tempted, that is, to be enticed to disobedient, to have his spiritual life tested or examined uh, by the devil. The devil is the enemy of every believer and, above all things, the enemy of God and God's plan. So Satan is going to test Jesus in three three different uh, tests. First of all, we read in verse 3, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now for the divine side of the Son, for his deity, for his omnipotence, this, is, this would be no problem. Jesus Christ could very easily convert the stones into bread. Actually, he is the creator of all things. And so when Satan addresses him, he is specifically addressing Jesus to rely on his deity. He starts off with this if clause, if you are the Son of God. And in Greek, there's four different ways to present this. 
And each has a slightly different nuance. You can say if, and I'm going to assume that, that the uh, hypothetical statement is true. If and, I, if and you are the Son of God, that's a first-class condition. That's what he uses here. He could use a second-class condition. Then he would be saying, well, for the sake of argument, we're going to assume you're the Son of God, but you're really not. That's not used here. He could say, well, if, but we don't know whether you're the Son of God or not, so maybe you are, maybe you aren't. That's a third-class condition. So he doesn't use any of those. He uses, Satan uses a first-class condition because Satan knows that Jesus was the incarnate second person of the Trinity. So he says, if, and you are the Son of God, and since that term Son of God is, is, is a Hebrew idiom indicating full deity, Satan says, since you are God, since you're omnipotent, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? You've just spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness without any food. You're, you're starving now. Those hunger pangs have come back on you. Some of you may have never gone through a lengthy fast. I remember years ago I went up to... Uh, a uh, wilderness training camp at uh, Wheaton College had at their Honey Rock camp up in up in uh, <clears throat> the upper peninsula of Michigan. And as part of this two-week, it was an outward-bound kind of uh, training thing. And at the end of two weeks of backpacking and canoeing, when you really didn't eat a whole lot to begin with, and I'd probably lost about 10 pounds just doing that in two weeks, we ended up on the shore of Lake Superior. Lake Superior has an average mean temperature of 33 degrees, which means that uh, harmful bacteria don't live there. And so we had all the water we could drink for three days. They strung us out along the, uh, along the shoreline about uh, 50, feet, 50 to 100 feet apart so that we couldn't see each other, talk to each other. And we had an enforced three-day solo and we were not to eat anything, and they scared the dickens out of us ahead of time by saying there's lots of bears around here, and if you try to sneak any food with you, the bears will smell it, and they'll come and get it at night. And, in fact, during one of the nights, the, uh, the bears did hit the ba- base camp and where the, uh, the leaders had, had the food. <laughs> so th- this happened. They said this would happen. You know, they, they ran these kinds of things all the time. They said this would usually happen at least once or twice a year. Somebody would uh, sneak a little peanut butter or a candy bar or something in their backpack, and a bear would come in in the middle of the night and rip up their backpack and scare them to death. So we didn't take any food with us, and we were going to go three days. Now, I was about 27 years old at the time, and I still had a healthy appetite. I, had, I did not think I could last three days with just on water. But the fact is that after about a day and a half, your appetite begins to diminish. By the end of the second day of a true fast, not one of these fasts where you just don't eat from sunup to sundown like the Muslims do with Ramadan or not some of these fasts like I'll hear some churches say, well, we're going to fast and pray this week, but we're just going to have a, you know, a, a meat fast or we're going to have a juice fast. You can drink juice, but you can't eat anything. Those are phony fasts. Uh, a real fast is when you don't eat anything. Now, your appetite will just go away. It just After about two days, you, ju- you just aren't hungry. And from what I understand, I've never gone 40 days, that about the 38th day, the appetite will start to come back. And by the 40th day, your body is saying, you're about to starve to death, you better get some food, and you just become ravenous. 
So this is where the Lord is. He has gone 40 days without food. Now, any of you can do that. It's not miraculous that he went 40 days. I hear people say that all the time. Well, he was Jesus. He could go 40 days without. No, that would be relying on his deity, wouldn't it? In his humanity, any human being can do that. They can go 40 days without food. You need a lot of water. You need other things. But, but you know, if you just have water, you can survive 40 days. And... Um, so, at, but at the end of 40 days, your appetite's coming back because it's time to, uh, to eat again so you can survive. So he's feeling those uh, ravenous hunger pangs at the end of 40 days, and this is a genuine test to him. Are you going to just solve this problem? You know, any of you who've been on a diet for a couple of weeks, you know what it's like. You open the refrigerator, and somebody gave you an apple pie, and it's just sitting right there. So what are you going to do about it? You just break down and eat. Well, Jesus isn't even going to convert the, the stones into, into bread. And his response is to quote the word of God. Now, notice this. Jesus is handling the situation, every one of these tests, by quoting the word of God. It is the word of God that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, if you don't have the word of God memorized... As David said in the Psalms, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. If you don't have the word memorized, then what verses are you going to quote? See, Jesus didn't say, well, Satan, there's a doctrinal principle here. And you're violating the doctrinal principle, and I'm going to apply this doctrinal principle. See, he didn't say that. He quoted the scripture. See, you have to know the scripture. And so he quotes the scripture, and the passage he quotes comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The issue isn't physical sustenance in our 70, 80, 90 years of life. The issue is your spiritual sustenance. And that comes only from the Word of God. Now, there's a context to Matthew chapter, uh, I mean, to Deuteronomy chapter eight, and so let's turn there to pick up the context so we understand what is being referenced here by the Lord Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy chapter eight alludes to the Israelites being in the wilderness. In verse 1 we read, Moses is addressing the people. And he says, every, every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the, the land of which the, father, uh, which the Lord swore to your fathers. Now the point that he's saying here is there, Deuteronomy is Moses' parting sermon to the Israelites, the second generation now, the first generation has all died off. The Exodus generation is gone with the exception uh, at this point of three people, Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. And Moses is going to die before they go into the land. So this is his uh, final message to the people, his farewell address. And he is reminding them that they have to obey everything that God says in the Mosaic Law and only by, by obeying God's word will they have victory over their enemies. 
And he says in verse 2, You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert. Same kind of situation the Lord is in. And there was a similar testing because the testing that the Jews went through in the wilderness was were they going to rely upon God to sustain them in their physical needs but put their focus on spiritual realities? They didn't do that. God supplied food for them every single day in the form of manna. Manna is from the Greek word man, which is, or ma, which is what? Man, men who, which is what it is. And they looked at that when they came out of their, uh, came out of their tents and looked around in the morning. There was this white stuff scattered like dew on the ground. And they looked at each other and they said, what it is, man, what it is. They didn't know what it was. So they looked at it, and they ate it, and it was good. It tasted like honey. I always say it tasted like a hot, fresh Shipley donut. And it had all the nourishment they would, could ever desire, all the vitamins, all the nutrients, everything they would need to live on. But that was all God was giving them. It was enough, though. See, we get bored very easily. God says, it is enough. It is all you need. I will sustain you with this manna during the entire time that you are in the wilderness so that you don't have to worry about food or drink. You don't have to worry about any sustenance. In fact, during the whole 40 years there in the wilderness, their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out. Uh, nothing wore out. God sustained them with his power so that they could do what? Learn to focus on him, learn to study his word, learn his word, and to make their spiritual life the highest priority. But the Exodus generation completely failed. They are the picture of the self-absorbed, arrogant believer who's more concerned with the temporal things than with eternal things. And this is what Moses is reminding their children, that their parents had failed. They, uh, God had uh, promised their fathers, but they, the, the fathers, that is the Exodus generation, had failed to humble themselves. So it's up to the second generation. God was teaching them humility, obedience to him in order to test them, to know, at the end of verse 2, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. It was testing. Would they rely on the sufficiency of God's grace the sufficiency of God's word, and the integrity of God's plan. So, verse 3, So he humbled you, Moses said, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. The issue in life is to focus on letting God solve your problems not trying to solve the problems you face in life apart from the Word of God. This is the ultimate in human viewpoint thinking. In James chapter 3, James says that the thinking of the world is really foolishness, and this, he defines the human viewpoint thinking as earthly and natural, that is the thinking of the unbeliever, the soulish believer, and demonic. Because the thinking that you can solve the problems in your life without submitting to the authority of God's word and the authority of God's 
uh, God's word and the power of God's word and the sufficiency of God's grace, you may solve the problem for a while. You may reach a level of stability without God, but ultimately it will fail because this is the same thing Satan thinks. He thinks that he can do it without God. And when we think that we can solve the problems in our life without God, then we're thinking like Satan thinks, and that's called demonic influence. We'll get into that a little later on. And anytime you're thinking according to human viewpoint, you're thinking like a demon. That's pure and simple. You're thinking that you can do it on your own without dependence upon God. So Jesus responds by saying, that man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then we have the second assault on Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle of the temple was on the southeast corner of the temple. It overlooked the Kidron Valley, you don't really see it the same way today because uh, the detritus of centuries has piled up and they've got highway roads there and everything now, but I'll show you, uh, give you an idea of what it's like. He sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, if you are the Son of God, same thing, first class condition, if and you are, let's rely on your divine power. Now you see what Satan is going to do is he's going to quote Scripture to Jesus. See, there's all kinds of people who are following the path of Satan who are misquoting, misinterpreting, and misapplying Scripture, and they just feel so self-satisfied that they're using the Word of God. But it's not that you use the Word of God, it's that you use the Word of God correctly. So, so Satan is going to use the Word of God, but in a misinterpreted and incorrect manner. He says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now, the pinnacle of the temple was the corner of the wall around the temple compound, and it was approximately 450 feet from the top of that corner down to the valley below. And what Satan is saying is just hurl yourself off, and you don't have to worry because Scripture says, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and see that and there leaves something out between the first clause and the next clause. It says, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, this is a misinterpretation of Scripture for a couple of different reasons. First of all, he's taking something that in the context of Psalm 91, that's where the quote comes from, the you is addressing the wilderness generation of Jews, not the Messiah. Second, because he is misinterpreting the original context, he comes up with a false application. He's trying to, trying to take scripture that applies to one person or one group and apply it to another person. And that leads him to a false application. If you don't interpret the Bible right, you're going to apply it wrong. That's why it's so important to go through those steps of observation, interpretation, application that I talk about so frequently. Now, here's a picture of the southeastern corner of the current wall around the temple compound, which is actually the compound of the Dome of the Rock and the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque. And I put in a black line there because that shows you, uh, gives you an idea of how far down this wall would have gone. This lower line here, just at the very bottom of the screen, 
is approximately where the valley bottom would have been at the time of Christ. All this other stuff in here is just the uh, trash that's been deposited there over the last 2,000 years. And right up here just below the wall, there's a modern uh, roadway now, four-lane road. And so it looks quite different from what it did back then. But it gives you some idea that from the top of the wall, which is probably about this high, down to the bottom was about 450 feet. Now let's take a look at the context in Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Turn with me to Psalm 91. You probably want to write in your Bible to correct the translation that you have there. Because in the way it's written and translated in most English translations, you can easily miss the significance of what happens with Satan's mis- misquoting. This is a psalm that's written and written to address the uh, Exodus generation. Uh, we'll start at verse 9. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you. Okay, that gets into the 11th verse. The focal point here is on the sufficiency of God's power over any sin, evil, temptation, problem, heartache that you face in life. God is our refuge, that fortress that he provides for us, for our souls in terms of doctrine is the refuge that we take, and it protects us from the assaults of the world and assaults of the devil. Now, in verse 11 we read, for he, here's the quote that Satan quotes, for he shall give his angels charge over you. It's talking about the operation of guardian angels over the Jews as they were going through the wilderness to keep you in all your ways. Now, there's the key phrase. That Hebrew word that is translated ways is a generic term that is the the Hebrew word derek. And it can refer to highway, road, path, journey. I mean, it has a wide range of meanings. But the journey, the path of the context here would be the, the, the direction of the Jews through the wilderness. That God is promising them that he will protect them and sustain them no matter what they face in their wilderness wanderings. Verse uh, 12 goes on to say, In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion, the cobra, the young lion, and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot. The whole context is talking about how God is going to protect the Jews in the wilderness. That's who he is. He's uh, referencing there. But what Satan does is he comes along... And he takes this out of context to test the Lord. So he, you have to understand the scripture. You have to understand the context. Just because somebody says that, well, the Bible means this, and you're going to find people with all kinds of letters after their name, all kinds of theological credentials who write extremely convincing arguments for what they think the scripture says. And people who are not well prepared doctrinally, who haven't been taught, who haven't studied, who haven't grown, can easily be deceived and led astray. But Jesus answers 
with Scripture. He says to Satan in verse 7, he uh, quotes Scripture again, and he says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. This is a quote from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 16. So once again, Jesus quotes Scripture, and Jesus quotes Scripture uh, correctly. The point that we see is Jesus uses the Word of God as his, uh, as his sword to parry the thrusts and the attacks of Satan. Okay, remember, and we'll look at this as we go through this study on spiritual warfare, that we're to put on the full armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. And we're to use the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. But the word there is that's called for the word of God is not logos, which would refer to the principles of the word of God. It's rhema, which is the spoken word of God. In other words, it's an emphasis on using scripture as a counter to the assaults of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's not just saying, well, I think there's a principle because we don't see Jesus relying on abstract theological principles. We see Jesus quoting Scripture. So we have to know uh, know the Word of God. That's not to say that abstract theology is not important. It is. But that's not the pattern that you ever see in the Scripture. Okay. Deuteronomy, I mean, Matthew chapter 4. Again. Uh Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and his glory. Now, who is Satan? Remember, Scripture says that Satan is the god of this age. He's the prince of the power of the air. He is the one who now has usurped the authority of man, and he is the one who is at the head of all the kingdoms of the earth. He is, he is trying to establish his kingdom on earth. So he offers, and he can legitimately do this at this point. He says, I can give you the glory without the pain. I can give you the crown without the cross. He says, I'm offering you the same thing the Father's going to give you, all the kingdoms of the earth, but I will give it to you without you having to go through the path of the cross without having to go through testing, without having to go through the suffering, all of that, we can just circumvent that, and I will give it uh, directly to you. Verse 9, the devil said, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus concludes and ends the event with another quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, this time from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Verse 13, he says, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. You won't serve the idols of human viewpoint, rationalism, or empiricism. You won't serve the abstract idols of human viewpoint thinking. You won't serve the idols of your own emotion and your own subjective concepts of God in terms of mysticism and following the inner liver quiver of your heart and say that that's really the Holy Spirit. That's just another way of getting into abstract emotional idolatry and um, emotional antinomianism. 
we have to rely upon the Word of God. The Word of God is our standard. So what we see in each of these is that Satan is challenging Jesus in terms of the same three things that we saw in in Genesis chapter 3. He's challenging the sufficiency of God's grace. Has he really given you enough to solve the problems you're going to face? Number two, is the word of God really sufficient? And number three, is the plan of God right? Is there integrity in the plan of God? Can you really trust the plan of God that when everything else is gone, you're going to trust the plan of God and rely upon it even to the point of where it might cost you your own life? And that is what the devil is challenging Jesus with in Matthew chapter 4. That is his attack. And Jesus surmounts those tests by relying on the sufficiency of God's grace, the sufficiency of the Word of God, and he understands that God's plan is perfect, and he needs to go through the test, go through the suffering, live as, uh, as true humanity in a fallen world, surrounded by sinners, go to the cross, and at the cross go through the unimaginable horror of paying the penalty for every single sin in human history so that he can provide that salvation for the human race. And Jesus Christ passes these tests which come at the beginning of his ministry and that authenticates him in terms of who he is in the inauguration of his public ministry. And then we're going to see different attacks that come in different forms, indirect attacks as well as direct attacks on the human race during his ministry, culminating with Satan's attack on the cross. But we'll get to that as we continue our study. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank thank you so much that we have this pattern, this example of our Lord Jesus Christ who demonstrated to us the sufficiency of your grace, your word, and your plan, that you have laid out a perfect plan for every believer, and this is laid out for us in your word. We need to learn your word. We need to apply it. And when we do, we will always see that your plan is perfect. Father, we pray for anyone who might be here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny. We pray that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, which means simply to trust him, to rely on him, to realize that Jesus Christ paid it all, and all you have to do is relax and rest in him, you will have eternal life. You will be given the perfect righteousness of Christ and you will be declared justified. Sin is not the issue. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. And at the instant that you trust in him, you have an eternal life which can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.